Good morning. So good to see you here this morning. I want to start with an announcement. As you've noticed over the last several months, we have had a problem, a good problem, with crowding in our auditorium. We have asked you to move up, move in, those kind of things, and appreciate all of you for doing that. But as we go forward, we've talked about as a staff and as an eldership what we can do to accommodate our crowding problem, a good problem, as I said. And what we have come up with is a trial run on Easter Sunday, which will be April 21st. We are going to try a concurrent service schedule. What this will look like is there will be two services happening at the same time in this place. The auditorium will pretty well be the same service that we always have. The family center will have approximately 150 to 200 people set up for worship over there as well. The idea is we don't want there to be a weaker or lesser service. Both of these services will be live. You could stay home and watch it on TV or on the computer if you wanted to. So we will not be broadcasting the sermon or the worship into the family center. There will be a song leader there. I'll be preaching there. It'll be just like what happens over here, just in reverse, that makes sense. So when I get down in the family center, I'll be in here and you'll be ready for me if you're in here. And we're going to do this concurrent service as a trial run on Easter Sunday to see if this is something we want to continue to pursue or if it's a format that works. Our elders have strongly, always strongly believed that we didn't want to create two churches and create two services. And so... We are trying to get around that idea, and as I said, we don't want to just uh, have people in a, in a big room watching uh, things happen on a TV. So how do we have that experience in both places where we can go to class together, we can worship in the same building, and then get out at about the same time and fellowship together? That's the idea. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, and you're thinking, well, how does this work and how does that work? Trust me, we've talked about all the details and some of the things we probably are going to learn as we go. So I ask that you be patient. I ask that you be a part of the solution because we can always point out issues, right? The first time that we do it, it may not go off completely smooth, but we think that it's going to be pretty close. What we're going to do in the, uh, in the family center is ask one of our classes that meets over there, our 40s through 60s, we're going to ask them to hang around and if they would be so kind to be a part of that worship service because we feel like our young adults they have a lot to do, a lot of moving pieces, getting kids and getting settled and all that. And actually, in order to make this work, the family center service has to start about five minutes early. So it'll start at 10.55, or excuse me, 9.55 instead of 10 o'clock. And so we've asked some to stay over there from 40s through 60s. We also would ask that not there be a, not a mass exodus over there. There's only 200 chairs set up. Once those 200 chairs are filled, we'll ask our other folks to stay in here, and, and our guests. Hopefully our guests are, are channeled into here so that they can be with us in here, and, and uh, then as we go forward, we'll kind of uh, look to accommodate different ways that we can make this happen. It's a trial run. We ask that you be patient with us and help us out with it in any way possible uh, so that we can make it work effectively. But we feel like that our, our service on the 21st will be crowded. Last year we had uh, well over 100 more folks than usual. And we figure that we can easily expect that 
uh, this year as well. And so we want to accommodate for that. Help us accommodate for that, okay? We appreciate your patience with that and, and uh, being a part of that solution. So you'll be hearing more about that in the next week or two. And uh, we'll, if you have any questions, you can ask one of the elders or myself. How many of you have seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Remember that movie? If you've seen that movie, you know that you can't watch it twice, right? At least not with the same intensity, can you? You can watch it once. You try to watch it twice, you can't help but see it with the ending in mind, right? I mean, you see the, the main character in the movie, Bruce Willis, and you see him in different scenes with different people, and he's not really interacting, but he kind of is. And, and then at the end of it, of course, is the incredible plot twist. And I don't want to ruin the movie for you, but I'm going to anyway. But at the end, you realize that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. He was a ghost, right? And so you can't watch that movie repeatedly without knowing the ending and without that affecting the way you watch the movie, right? And such is the case with Scripture. The way we read Scripture is that we always have the ending in mind, or at least we should. The resurrection affects the way that we read Scripture, even if it's a piece of Scripture or a book in the Bible that mentions nothing about the resurrection, you still cannot read Scripture without the ending in mind, right? Notice Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 5. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The resurrection helped these women understand Jesus' words. In light of the resurrection, suddenly things surrounding Jesus started to make sense. They didn't seem so ridiculous. The picture was starting to come into clearer focus because the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, just as he said he would, just like he, the prophets had said before he even came. Then notice verse 21 and follow. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So although they didn't know everything at the time, Jesus is helping to open the eyes of their hearts. They're starting to wrap their minds around this whole Messiah kind of thing. Jesus is helping them to see and to enlighten them on the road to Emmaus. All the Bible. All of Scripture, all of our lives, find meaning in the resurrection. How do I know this? Well, because the Bible tells me so. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. 
Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You don't need me to elaborate here. Paul's very straightforward, isn't he? I mean, he tells it like it is. If Jesus did not die and rise again three days later, then all this stuff we're doing, being here at church, reading the Bible, worshiping, talking about Jesus, following His commandments, none of that matters. It's worthless. It's useless. useless. If it's all a farce, then what does it matter, right? But if the resurrection did happen, and Paul feels very confident that it did, if it did happen, then the resurrection launches us, it launches the church, it launches Christianity, and it launches us into heaven as we live our lives by it. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, Chris, it's not Easter yet. Why are you talking about the resurrection, right? I mean, it's not April 21st. Why are you talking about the resurrection? I thought we were talking about a tale of two thieves. Trust me, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not off my rocker, not yet. I, I think we need to discuss the section that we're talking about this morning of Scripture by setting it up, looking at the resurrection. Because the resurrection means everything to what we're studying. Not just this morning, but every morning on Sunday when we, when we come together and we study the Bible together. But certainly... The resurrection sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 33. Before we get there, much of the concern about the thief on the cross has to do with salvation, doesn't it? Anytime you hear the phrase, the thief on the cross, what do you think of? Well, he didn't have to be baptized. Anytime you have a spiritual discussion with someone about baptism, it seems like it always comes back to that, right? Well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and he made it to heaven. But there's so much more to the thief on the cross than just a discussion about baptism, right? Not only is there a thief on the cross, there's two. It's plural, not singular. So we have two thieves here that we have to discuss. Anytime we hear the thief on the cross, we often think of the one who believed in Jesus and asked him to remember him when he came into the kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the one we think of, but there were two there on that day, right? Here's something we need to get straight before we go any further. All of humanity is represented in the two thieves. Every person on earth who has ever lived, who is currently living, who will ever live in the future, all of humanity is represented of the two thieves on the cross. At Calvary that day, there were three crosses, two destinies, and one Savior. So, let's look at the text, starting in verse 33. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other one on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Do you see yourself in this scene? Do you see yourself hanging on those crosses? I mean, it would be good if we pictured ourselves there that day. Because those were your crosses. The thieves deserved to be hanging there. Jesus didn't, but the thieves did, right? They absolutely were suffering justly. They deserved the punishment that they were getting. And I know that at some point in your life you have sinned. We've all either lied or gossiped or slandered or we've been guilty of putting other things above God. So we've all been in a position where we deserve some punishment for our sin, right? Do you see yourself in this scene? I want you to notice the similarities between these two thieves. Both were guilty. Both were condemned. Both were suffering justly. Both are beside Jesus. Matthew's account tells us that at one point both were hurling abuses or insults at Jesus. Both want to be saved from death. Both died on the same day, in the same place, and in the same way. But there's a monumental difference between the two, right? The major difference between the two is based on how they viewed the man in the middle. How many of you remember the name Marshall Keeble? Marshall Keeble was a dynamic gospel preacher. Some of you may have been old enough to, to remember hearing him speak in person. I did not have that opportunity. I've heard him on uh, in recordings, but never got to listen to him in person. Dynamic, wonderful preacher of the gospel. But he was often criticized for a practice of his. He called everybody brother. Everybody. Even people that were not of the brotherhood, even people who were sinners, he called them brother. And people took offense to that sometimes. Why are you calling everyone brother? Not everyone is our brother. And listen to his response. He says, well, they're all my brothers. The ones I miss in Christ, I get in Adam. How true is that, right? Remember the words of Paul in Romans 5, beginning verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as though, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are all brothers and sisters, right? What is the common bond that united us before we became Christians? Sin, right? What's the common bond that unites us as Christians? The blood of Christ, right? We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all includes the thieves on the cross. All includes all of us. We've all failed up to, to, to live up to God's good standard. We've all failed to meet that standard. We're all rebels. Like Adam, we're all partakers of the forbidden. But just as sin entered the world through one man, one man has the opportunity to rescue all of us. You ever eat a Tootsie Pop? You know what those are? There used to be a commercial many years ago. I guess I was a kid. 
and this cartoon boy who went up to Mr. Owl and asked him how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. And the owl licked three times, one, two, three, and then bit into it. And he said, the answer is three, right? That was the slogan, three licks. What makes Tootsie Pops better than any other regular lollipop is because they have a Tootsie Roll in there. Otherwise, why not just have a flat lollipop? You get a Tootsie Pop because you want what's in the middle. You get tired of licking, you can bite into it. The middle makes all the difference. And in our story this morning, the middle makes all the difference. The key to it is how these two thieves on either side of Jesus viewed the man in the middle. The middle made all the difference. And I'm sure you've noticed how the Bible is is really good at specializing in contrast. You have light versus dark. You have Cain and Abel. You have Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, truth and error, wisdom and foolishness, good and evil, heaven and hell. And here at Calvary, we have yet another contrast. One thief sounds a lot like the devil, doesn't he? Notice what he says. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Sound familiar? We've heard that before, right? When Satan tempted Jesus, same address. If you are the Son of God, if you are, then prove it. What if Jesus had popped the nails out of that thief's wrist and his feet and and let him down from that cross in the sight of everyone? What if he had let him down and he was able to walk away a free man, healthy and well? Do you think that man would have changed his life? Do you think he would have turned around the direction of his life? Do you think he would have become an instant disciple? I don't think so. I mean, based on the demeanor of this gentleman that we read in Scripture, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but based on what I read, I I don't see this as a man who cares anything about a Savior, except for anyone that can get him down off that cross. In that sense, he wants a Savior. But he doesn't see Jesus as a king. He doesn't see him as someone that he wants to rule his life. He just simply sees him as someone that might can help him out of a jam. We call that carjack theology. You know what carjack theology is? You know what carjack is, right? I mean, they're burdensome, they're messy, that's why you keep them in your trunk in case you need one. Then they're very helpful, right? They're useful because you pop it out and you, you take a tire off that's got a flat and you put a new one on and you're good to go. Many people treat Jesus that way in their daily life, like a carjack. Jesus, jack me up out of this mess, jack me up out of this brokenness, jack me up off this cross, help me get on with life. I don't really want to follow you. I don't really want the demands of discipleship, but I would just like to have someone to save me from my current predicament. The predicament that I got myself in, right? That's carjack theology. And that's what I gained from reading about this man, is that he didn't care about the Savior. At least not one that could save his soul, only one that could save him in that moment. But in contrast, you have this other criminal who's in the same predicament, who perhaps looks up and he reads the sign above Jesus' head that says the King of the Jews. No doubt he heard all the mocking and all the ridicule and all the insults. I'm sure he saw the people spit in Jesus' face and, and slap him and, and give him sour wine. I mean, this is really what I find particularly interesting about this episode. Is the fact that the thief on the other side of Jesus sought Jesus, sought a Savior, when Jesus looked the least like a Savior. Think about that. I mean, when you're seeking salvation, you don't turn to a guy who's got his chin rested on his chest, you know, he's had his beard plucked out by the roots, he's wearing a crown of thorns, he's a bloody pulp. I mean, 
this thief on the cross believed in Jesus at a time when he was hapless, uh, dying, mutilated. You think about the response of this gentleman. What kind of Savior hangs on a cross, almost dead, barely can draw a breath? What a pathetic sight, right? Yet this thief believed that the suffering servant, the suffering Savior, could do something about his sinful situation. Notice how differently these two men respond. One said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. The other said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One wanted Jesus to get himself off the cross. The other wanted Jesus to let him be with him in paradise. A great difference, right? One railed against Jesus in anger. The other rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Suffering what? Suffering justly. Both thieves deserve this, as we said. They deserve to be hanging there on those crosses. Their sin was inextricably tied to their punishment. You do wrong, this is what you get. I think it's important. Any person who is lost in sin understands just how condemned they are, that they are getting what they deserve. Like this one thief recognized, we are getting what we deserve. We deserve this. It's important for, for any person who is lost in sin to realize that, to come to a recognition that they are lost in their sin, that only Jesus can save them, that He stands for good, for, for truth, for salvation. That while we may be suffering justly, we don't have to suffer for eternity. Jesus died for both thieves, didn't he? He died for both. And that brings something else to light, and that is that judgment and repentance are not that far apart. They're really not. These two thieves would end up far apart in eternity. They're actually far apart on earth, even though they were in close proximity. They're actually pretty far apart on earth. Sometimes the chasm between judgment and repentance is not that big, not that wide, not that deep. It's a response. It's a simple response a lot of times. One took advantage, the other did not, right? As a result, they're going to be far apart in eternity. These two thieves, as I said, represent the entire human race. Ultimately, the world is not divided racially or ethnically or socioeconomically. The world is divided into two camps, and it's not good or bad. It's dead or alive. We're either dead or alive spiritually. On one side are the saved, on the other side are the condemned. On one side are those who have been washed in the blood of Christ, on the other side are those who choose to justify themselves. Heaven and hell stand on either side of the cross of Christ. Everything depends on what you do with Jesus. In other words, the middle makes all the difference. That's pretty heavy. So let's lighten the mood a little bit. There was a gentleman whose mother-in-law was visiting Israel, and unfortunately she passed away. And so the Israeli officials told him, we can ship her body back to the United States for $10,000, or you can bury her here for two hundred. And without skipping a beat, he said, ship her body back. And the Israeli official said, you heard what I said, right? 
$10,000 to ship her back, or she can be buried here for two hundred. And he said, yes, I heard you. But 2,000 years ago, y'all buried a guy there that rose again three days later, and I can't take that chance. Maybe a poor attempt at humor, but we know the story, and we know how it ends, right? All of Scripture is a record of redemption. It's a story of redemption. It's about God buying people back. What was lost in the Garden of Eden will be restored. And the only reason we remember the account of the thief on the cross is because of the resurrection. It's the only reason. As I said earlier, we read all of the Bible with the end in mind. All of it is saturated with the resurrection, every word. And the only reason we know anything about the thief on the cross is because of the resurrection, right? Why would we even know anything about this man and who would care if we did? What would it matter? What does it matter if the resurrection isn't true? Why do we even need to read or study a story about a thief or two thieves on a cross, right? Any number of people could have said the same thing Jesus said while hanging on that cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. But so what? So what? The resurrection, that's what. The resurrection makes all the difference. The fact that we serve a risen Savior makes all the difference. That's why we can have confidence that the thief on the cross is actually in paradise and that this isn't a fictional account. And that's why we can live with confidence that, there, that, that we can be there as well. That someday we get to enjoy eternity with our Heavenly Father. So, brings us to a question and an invitation. Answer this question in your heart. Which side of the cross are you on? And what do you need to do in your life to be on the right side of eternity? To be someone who can walk away from this worship service this morning feeling confident that if your expiration date came due today, you'd be in paradise. If you have a need, come as we stand and as we sing.